Hey everyone, it's Jackie and we're in our series on the women in the line of Jesus. And one of the things I wanted to do in this series was highlight other female preachers. And I've got to thank you for listening in. It's important that we platform women so that they can get experience in preaching and also so we can get used to hearing a scripture from a female voice and a female perspective. And today you're going to hear from Pastor Laura and she's going to preach on Mary, the mother of Jesus. But before we go there, I want to share with you something that happened to me this week. A while back, a Catholic friend of mine sent me a book about Mary. And you probably know that Protestants and Catholics take a different view on Mary. But I'm kind of always open to learning from other Christian faith traditions. And so I started reading the book this week. I read a few chapters, and then I went for a long walk on the trail in Austin, about five miles. It's where I go to think. And man, on this day, my brain was firing off. And after the walk, I met up with a friend and I I just shared with her what the spirit was bringing to me about Mary. And she cracked up and said, you know, nobody else was thinking that kind of stuff on the trail, right? I'm very aware, actually. And it occurred to me, I never share with you guys this kind of stuff. It's, um, but it is like how preachers process thinking through the scriptures. And so I want us to open our souls and listen to Laura, inviting the spirit to speak to our real lives. And then when she finishes, I want you to keep your souls open because I'm going to be vulnerable and share some of my brain ramblings. And as I do, I suspect there's something in there for you too. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of The Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. I wanted to start by telling you that I was born in the month of August, which means it was perfect timing for me in December to serve as baby Jesus in my church's Christmas pageant. So I don't personally remember what that moment was like, but I've seen pictures and I did my job really well, which was to lie there and just look like a little baby, which I did with great, great skill. Um, I also wanted to show you all a picture um, on the slide, there you go, of Mary holding the baby Jesus and to tell you the story of how this painting came to be. Um, In the 1970s, a Catholic priest went to Cameroon and in order to teach the Mafa people about the gospel, he invited this group of people um, to enact stories from the life of Jesus. And then he took photographs of them posing as they were enacting the stories of Jesus. And then he invited someone to paint those photographs. So we have 60 different paintings of the Mafa people 
acting out the stories of the life of Jesus. And I have thought many times, what a beautiful way to learn the gospel, um, to live out, to think about what it was like um, to be witness to Jesus's life and what, to see what Jesus looked like and how he interacted with people um, and to do that yourself, to, be in, to stand in those places and to have someone document it. So in this way, the Mafa people learned about Jesus by acting out the stories of Jesus's life. So tonight, we're gonna look at the story of Mary and learn about the moment when she was asked by God to do something remarkable. Which brings me to my first point, which is interruption. Um, I want you to imagine for a moment, Mary is probably a teenager, like probably high school age, somewhere in there, and she thought she knew what her life was going to look like. It was all mapped out, she was engaged, um, so she's living her life in a town where she grew up, where she knew everyone, and living her life, minding her own business, and the trajectory of her life had been determined, and she was not, um, she didn't have a problem with that. She was okay with this. But in this moment, God sent the angel Gabriel to interrupt her life. And Gabriel said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now Mary wasn't expecting to have her life interrupted by an angel. This wasn't part of her plan, but Gabriel told her she was highly favored and that God was with her. And this has often made me wonder, was she highly favored because God chose her or did God choose her because she was highly favored? I don't know that we get an answer to that question. I don't even know that we need to know the answer to that question. But we do know that Mary was chosen by God and God promised to be with her. God chose Mary uh, to show the world what God is like and to show what it looks like to follow and obey God. Which brings me to my second point, which is Gabriel's news. So. Mary, we're told, was greatly troubled and wondered what kind of greeting this could be. She's minding her own business, living her life, when an angel of God appears to her, and she is highly troubled by this, and she's got questions. Now, Gabriel tells her not to be afraid and reminds her that she had found favor with God, and then he delivers his big news. Let's break that news down into three different parts. The first thing he tells Mary is that she will become pregnant and have a son. The second is that her son will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the third is that God will give her son the throne of his ancestor, King David, and that he will reign over Israel forever and his kingdom will know no end. So this is the news but I want us to see that Mary can't quite get for past the first point. She's stuck there. She says, wait a minute, I will get pregnant and have a son? How will this be? How is this going to get, how is this going to work? Because she's confused and she's got questions. Now I want us to look at in this moment, what Mary knew, what did she understand? Because there's a lot that she, fully understands in this moment. There's a few things that she's confused about and a few things that she could not possibly understand what was to come. But the first thing, what did she know? 
Well, Mary knew that her pregnancy would be a scandal to everyone in her community. She knew full well that no one is going to believe her story about an angel and a special kind of pregnancy. She knew that people would jump to conclusions about her, her fiance, and her baby. These are the things that Mary knew. She knew she would be misunderstood and that people would find her story difficult to believe. So if that's what Mary knew, what was she confused about in this moment? Uh, Gabriel told her that her son would be the son of the Most High God who would reign on the throne of King David over all Israel forever. Gabriel's news has both political and theological implications. So politically, you need to know that in the first century, the people of Israel were longing desperately for a new King David. They wanted a strong Jewish leader who would rescue them from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire and allow Israel to be an independent nation once again. So that's a longing of their hearts. So when Gabriel told her that her son would reign on the throne of King David, this sounded like good news to her. But God didn't mean it the way that Mary probably heard it. You see, God had a bigger kingdom in mind than just first century Israel. God's plan was that Jesus would sit on a throne over all earthly kingdoms of all time. So those are the political implications. Theologically, Mary is told that her son would be the son of the Most High God. Now, Mary probably thought that that meant that her son would have some sort of a special relationship with God. At this particular point in time, she probably did not realize that her son would be God. That was probably outside of her ability to imagine in this moment. That would take time for her to discover. So Gabriel's news was shocking and confusing. It interrupted her very well-planned life. Mary had no way of knowing exactly what this news meant for her. But she did know that saying yes to this news would radically change her life and would radically impact her relationships within her community. Which brings me to my third point, which is that Mary said yes. And I want us to see this very, very carefully. God asked Mary to do something. He didn't order her, he invited her to something. And Mary answered God's invitation, and her answer was yes. Gabriel told her some information about how this process was going to work, and as proof or evidence that it would work, he told her about her distant relative Elizabeth, who was already experiencing a miracle pregnancy of her own. And then the angel said these words to her, No word from God will ever fail. This will happen. And Mary answered, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary said yes. Mary said yes to being Jesus's first teacher. She taught Jesus how to walk. She taught him scripture. She wiped his nose 
and she taught him how to pray. Mary was his mother and his very first teacher. Mary also said yes to being Jesus' first disciple. Mary trusted God with things that she did not understand, things she couldn't have even had the capacity to understand. She said yes to having her life interrupted. She said yes to having her plans turned upside down and being misunderstood. She knew exactly what was going on, and she said yes. She committed to saying yes to God, whatever that might mean for her. Now hear me very carefully on this. When Jesus was little, Mary was his teacher. When Jesus grew up, he became Mary's teacher. It's fascinating, the change and of the dynamic of their relationship over time. Mary had no idea how different things would look when Gabriel interrupted her life with his announcement. But she said yes. She was willing to agree to give all of what she knew of herself to all of what she knew of God and to trust him with the rest. Mary said yes to showing the world what God is like and to show what it looks like to follow and obey God. She said yes to following Jesus, her own son. So in conclusion, Mary was the first disciple of Jesus. She shows us what it looks like to follow Jesus. She knew obedience to God would cause her to be misinterpreted and misunderstood. I wonder if following God has ever led to your being misunderstood or misinterpreted. She obeyed God anyway. She counted the cost. She knew it wouldn't go without cost, and she agreed anyway. She laid down her expectations for her life. She followed Jesus. Friends, tonight, in this Christmas season, I want to remind us that being a disciple of Jesus means being like Mary and following Jesus. It means being willing to have Jesus interrupt our lives, our careful designed plans for our lives. It means saying yes to Jesus even when we don't completely understand what that might look like. It means showing Jesus what Jesus looks like to a watching world. It means following Jesus even when it's going to cost us. Today, we are invited to follow Jesus. We are invited, like the Mafa people, into this process of embodying the story of Jesus among our friends and neighbors, to look like Jesus to a watching world. And so, as we leave here tonight, I want you to leave with this question in mind. What do people see about Jesus when they look at you? If they look at the model or the display of Jesus that you are putting on with your life, what do they learn about who Jesus is? Mary showed us what it looks like to follow Jesus into the unknown, being willing to be misunderstood and misinterpreted, and doing it anyway. Friends, I hope you're encouraged this season that God knows us, God is with us, God 
um, was determined not to live without us, and so he came in the form of a baby to set us an example, to experience life the way that we experience life, and to show us what God is like. I love Laura's sermon. Her logical flow like helps our brain retain, right? And her challenge to consider Mary as a role model. Whew. If I'm honest, even after 30 years, I find saying yes to Jesus when I know it's going to be hard or hurt to be, well, not easy or normal. I don't think it's normal to want to walk toward pain. But the older I get, the more aware I become of the fact that it's part of the human experience even for those of us who follow Jesus. Anyways, I said I'd share some ramblings about Mary. Okay, so hold on here, because here we go. And I, and I want to point out as I get started that I'm not trying to share some form of scholarly exposition or theological work. It's more like I'm mid-rashing. I'm imagining and letting the Spirit show me stuff, connect dots, and fire off in my brain. So here's what I've been thinking. I've been in this book, Petrie, the author, makes the argument in this book that we must understand Mary through the eyes of the first century Jew. And that's absolutely true. And he says first century Jews were waiting not only for the Messiah, but the return of the Ark of the Covenant that signified the glory of the Lord was with his people. Now track with me for just a moment here. The glory of the Lord had at one time filled the tabernacle out in the wilderness and later in the temple in Jerusalem. And if you go to the Wailing Wall, you can see Jewish people today praying for the glory of the Lord to return to the temple. Now, Petrie makes the argument that Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. And now the Ark of the Covenant is what sits in the Holies of Holies in the temple. And together, the Ark and the temple are the places where God's glory dwells. And when Peter Petrie wrote that, I was like, what? What you saying there? You know, I'm not so sure. But I did a little thinking. And let me give you, uh, back up a little bit and give you a little biblical history about the Ark of the Covenant. And by the way, when you hear me say the word Ark, try to picture a box or a wooden chest coated in pure gold with two angels flanking each side of the chest. And at the top of the box, there's this elaborate golden lid known as the mercy seat, which I will reference later on. But you got kind of the image in your head, right? And after the Israelites left Egypt, you know, they were in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, they went on a journey. And that word journey can also mean exodus. And on this journey, they stopped at Mount Sinai in the wilderness. And I got to tell you, I've been there. I've hiked that mountain. It's barren. It's like one big rock just throwing up into the sky. No greening. Almost nothing lives there. I can absolutely see why the Israelites were grumbling. Okay, at Mount Sinai, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And then God instructed the Israelites to build a tabernacle, a place where God would meet his people and speak with them. That's what scripture says. And they were to place the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And together, the tabernacle and the ark are the places where God's glory, Kabod, resides. It says this in Exodus 40, 43, and I'm quoting, the glory, cloud, will descend from heaven. Then the cloud covered the tent meaning and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's like, whoosh, think smoke and people hit the deck. I mean, it's a normal response when exposed to Kabod. God's presence, his essence, his wonder, his weightiness. Kabod moves in and encamps with God's people. 
So the glory cloud was this visible sign that God had come to be with them. And that was kind of a big deal in antiquity because back then the gods like didn't hang out with people. They were too superior for such lowly creatures. Not Israelites, God. No, he came to be among his people. Later with Jesus, he was God with his people. Later after Jesus ascends, right? The spirit is God in his people. So in the wilderness, from the time on, that time on, the cloud lifted from the, whenever the cloud lifted from the tabernacle, the Israelites would break camp and follow the cloud. And when the cloud settled, they did too. So we learn that the glory cloud is how God led his people through the wilderness to their promised land. Now, after the Israelites settle in the promised land, we read a lot about the Ark of the Covenant being moved around in the land to different places until King David decides he wants to bring it back to Jerusalem. But en route, something bad happens. Uzziah dies because he didn't handle the ark very properly. And David got really scared and said, I think I'll let that ark reside with some other guy at his place. But then after three months, David noticed that that guy and his family were getting all kinds of blessings. And David was like, nah, I think I want that with me. So after three months, take note of that, after three months, David brings the, car, the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, <clears throat> where it resides until the Babylonians destroyed the temple in 500-some B.C. Now, Ezekiel prophesied about this time. He said a time would come when, quote-unquote, the glory cloud of God's presence would depart from Jerusalem. That's Ezekiel 10. And that was when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. And from that point on, we've been trying to find the lost ark. That's right. You've seen the movies. And since that time, the Jews have been waiting for the temple to be rebuilt, the ark of the covenant to be returned, and the glory of God, kabod, swoosh, be with his people. Now, thanks for going with me on that history of the lost ark. <laughs> Back to Mary. Petrie reminds us that God came as the new, or Jesus came as the new Adam, and we could also say he came as the new Moses to inaugurate a new Exodus. And I don't have time to go into the parallels in scripture, but you can check them out for yourself. But Jesus is considered the new Moses, bringing about a new Exodus. The Jewish Exodus, remember, was this journey out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. But Jesus's Exodus is out of Israel into a new heaven and a new earth. And by the way, that's the journey we're on right now. Now, most of us Protestants would agree with that kind of thinking. But then Peter goes on to ask the question, if Jews were waiting for the Messiah and the new Adam and the new Exodus, then where is the new Ark of the Covenant? Because he reminds us, from a first century Jews perspective, they would not only be looking for the son, the Messiah, but also for the long absent cloud, God's kabod. Now, Petrie argues that the New Testament Mary is linked to the glory cloud and the Ark of the Covenant. And he shows some parallels in scripture through this chart. You can't see the chart, but it's on a page. It's actually on page 58. I can see it. So I thought I'd read it to you, but you're going to have to be patient because it's a lot of Bible. Okay. And in one column he has in this chart labeled the Ark of the Covenant. And in the other column, he labels it the Virgin Mary. And the first column in the Ark, he references Exodus 40, 34, and 35. It reads like this. 
the glory of the Lord and the cloud covered the tabernacle and overshadowed them. And then in the Virgin Mary slot, he has a parallel passage. It says this, it's from Luke 1, 35. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. Those are the same words. Overshadowed in the tabernacle, overshadowed Mary. The next reference he gives underneath Ark is 2 Samuel 6, 2. David arose and went to the hill country to Judea to bring up the Ark of God. Luke 1, 39. Mary arose and went into the hill country of Judah to visit Elizabeth. Underneath the Ark, 2 Samuel 6, 9. David admits his unworthiness to receive the Ark by explaining, exclaiming, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? Luke 1, 43. Elizabeth admits her unworthiness to receive Mary by exclaiming, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? In the Ark column, 2 Samuel 6, 15 and 16, David leaped before the Ark as it was brought in with shouting. Luke 1, 42 for 40, 41 through 42, John leaped in, Mary, in Elizabeth's womb at the sound of Mary's voice, and Elizabeth sh- cried with a loud shout, quote unquote, right? Last one, 2 Samuel 6, 11. The ark remained in the hill country in the house of Obed for three months. Remember, I emphasized that before. Luke 1, 56. Mary remained in the hill country in Elizabeth's house for three months. Kind of interesting, right? This is the stuff that geeks people like me out. Now, Petrie acknowledges that many scholars simply ignore the parallels between Mary and the ark. And I'm not really here to debate whether he's right or wrong. Because remember, I'm not trying to do some expositional theological work. I'm midrashing. I'm imagining. And I'm trying to imagine about what he's saying and what that tells me about God if Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant. And all of this is firing off while I'm taking a walk around the trail in Austin. And I move to noodling on, okay, well, wait a minute. Let me think about the Ark of the Covenant. What's in there? What are the elements that it holds? Well, we know it held the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments are a baseline for how we're to have a healthy community. It's not some high standard like we all make it out to be like, whoa, I can never hit the Ten Commandments. Like it's bottom baseline living. Like, hey, if you want to get along well, how about not take my livelihood, a.k.a. chickens? Or, hey, if we're going to live well together in this community, like try not to murder my brother or have sex with my wife. I mean, this is bottom line stuff. Now, Jesus says when he comes that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he goes on to speak about the Beatitudes. Perhaps we could say that in this discourse, the Beatitudes, Jesus gives us a more extensive understanding of how his society, how his kingdom will operate in such a way that all of creation can flourish. And so if you think about what this man is saying in this book, which I don't even know if I agree, is that if Mary is the ark, that means she beholds the law, the beatitudes in her mind, body, and soul. And like, I don't even know what to do with that. And what else is in the ark? Well, the staff is there, Aaron's staff, right? What does a staff in general represent? Well, staffs were used by shepherds to guide their sheep. And Aaron's rod was used to bring about the plagues. And so it's a symbol of divine power, freedom from oppression. Yes, yes, yes. It means many other things too, but hang in there with me. It was used by Aaron to bring about plagues, right? To get the Pharaoh to let his people go. And so we could say that 
the staff could is this idea of overcoming oppressive systems and leaders and partners in marriage. It's it's something that helps guide people to freedom. And I was thinking about what Laura said. Mary is our role model for what it looks like to follow Jesus. In what way does she guide us like a staff to Jesus, her son, who makes all things new? And the last thing in the car, in the Ark of the Covenant was manna, right? God miraculously provided in the wilderness, not exactly what the people wanted or it envisioned, but it did sustain them. And we see this similar provision through Jesus when he miraculously feeds the multitudes. So if Petrie is right, what kind of provision does Mary behold for you and me? What can we learn from her that can sustain our faith in Jesus, even when it doesn't look like what we want or had envisioned? Now, come on, if you read about Mary's life, surely she has something to teach us about that kind of faith in the wilderness. And then my mind wandered to how Mary sustained Jesus. Her, her womb provided this safe place for him to grow and develop, right, as a, as a baby. And later after birth, her breasts literally provided and sustained him. There's something to that imagery here. I'm not sure I totally agree with Petrie, but I should be considering what is the connection. And all of this is very fascinating stuff for me. But while I'm walking around the trail and this is firing off, I kept saying to the spirit, so what? I mean, what's the practicality to all this? Well, he kept going and telling me the so what? Like, for example, we're on an exodus. We're on a journey too, right? Um, from oppression into newness, just like the Israelites, from learning how to live a new way as a human in a new place. And sometimes, just like the Israelites, our wilderness looks the same. It's scary. And I'm not a very fearful person, but I'm not stupid either. There really are things to be afraid of in this world. And the wilderness, you know, when we're in it, it can make us feel lost and unsteady and unsure. I can't always see where God is taking me when I'm in the wilderness. And yet I know that where I am doesn't feel very normal. It feels very foreign. And often at these times, I don't find a lot of confidence that provision is coming. And even when it does come, I don't always like it as it's packaged, you know, like manna. This past week, uh, my husband Steve's received some violent videos of people he loves in Africa being slaughtered, murdered right there in the video. And it broke him. I mean, I saw him ball and my husband doesn't ball very often, but it's really hard to work in one of the most broken places on the earth for over 20 years. And right on the heels of that video, Steve happened to be going on a scuba diving trip with our son, Hunter. It was a gift that our kids gave to him for his 60th birthday. And I was so thankful that this was happening right after those videos. The day he left, I was chatting with Jesus and something came to me. And I called Steve when he landed and said, babe, would you allow me to be your spiritual director for a moment? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, I want you to walk the beach. And I want you to scream. I mean, I want you to lament. I want you to cry out to God, why and how long? I mean, let it out, swear, do whatever you need to do, be honest. And then as you hang out with your son and go into the depths of the ocean, would you look? Where's the beauty? Where's the goodness? Both exist. Because in the goodness, in the beauty, 
There's God, Steve. And this is what it looks like, this Exodus journey toward the promised land. And no one models how to do that better than Mary. And then there's the imagery of the mercy seat that kept, you know, like rolling around in my head. So much theologically to say there, like we could talk about the day of atonement, but that's not where my mind went. I sat with the idea of mercy and I noticed it wasn't called the seat of judgment. It's the mercy seat. It's the place, or to quote scripture, the very place at the mercy seat that God meets his people, quote unquote. In Exodus 25, 22, God declares, there I will meet you. So it's this idea that God speaks to us, that he wants to be near us, that we can be with him and not expect judgment, but mercy. And I wonder, can you hear God? Can you? Do you hear the tender, loving, good kindness coming from God's voice? It's full of beauty and wisdom. I got to tell you, if you're hearing a critical God, a condemning, judgmental God speak to you, that ain't Jesus. Jesus is the mercy seat. And I was thinking how often we Christians are anything but. And what would it look like if people approached us and received a seat at the mercy seat? And I was noodling on that. And my daughter texted me and her text was a little, you know, curt. And I wanted to text back something, you know, to kind of straighten out her attitude. But then I had that image rolling around in my head, that mercy seat. And I realized I didn't need to say anything. And I heard the spirit say, just love, Jackie, just love. And no one knows how to love Jesus or show us how to love Jesus more than Mary. So maybe we should watch how she does it. And one more thing, because I know this is a little longer and my rambling is going on and on. I understand it happens. Just ask Steve. Recently, I shared with Steve how sometimes I have felt like a second class citizen, how my life has taken like a backseat to the men in our Christian communities. And Steve, you know, was inquisitive and said, well, tell me what you mean by that. And as I got to talking about it, I said, well, it's not something I feel. It's actually a fact. And then I listed the ways in which it has shown up in my life as a Christian leader. For example, I did a conference at a summer camp and I got paid $500 and my male colleague did the exact same conference and he got paid $2,000. And when my senior pastor got sick with cancer and I took over the role of managing the preaching team, I suggested to Steve, who at the time was my boss, that I should be financially compensated. And he said, no, I can't do that. You're my wife. And how will that look? We, you know what? The next person who happened to be a man who came in and took over that role, he got paid for it. And then there was when Steve got fired and I was taken off the preaching team and nobody even said a word about it. Just no longer on the rotation. It, you know, like not even, I wasn't a staff member anymore. I was Steve's wife. And the point I'm trying to make is how the less than story can sometimes be subtle, very subtle. But it said to many of us, particularly many of us women, and thinking about Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant, I was like, no more of that crap. 
No more hearing we're second best. No more being treated second best. The glory cloud kabod descended upon this woman. Her body contained the elements, the staff, the man of the law. I mean, Jesus is bestowing honor and worth upon women. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And so all of this is a lot to live in my brain. Alas, why my friend said, you know, nobody else was thinking these things when they were walking on the trail. And yes, that may be true, but this is the process for many of us who preach. This is how we spend our time. This is how we think. This is how we wrestle down Jesus and his scriptures. And having a mind that rattles these things around can feel lonely at times because most people I hang out with aren't thinking these things and don't really want to talk about them. So I just want to thank you for allowing me to share, to reveal a bit of myself. I am so grateful for you guys. And geez, I sure do pray that sometime this week, you'll get out and walk and allow the spirit to chit chat with you. Look around, pause, contemplate, taste and see that God is good. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day. Thank you.